Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In today's episode, Convention of States Texas hosts a town hall featuring Dr. Tom Coburn and Mark Meckler. Welcome, everybody. What a great turnout. Uh, my name is Matt Keatman. I've, um, I guess I'm the director of the Park City's Preston Hollow Leadership Forum currently. I'm going to go ahead and bring up the co-directors of the Convention of States for Texas here, and that's Tamara Colbert and Paul Hudson. Hey there. Howdy, y'all. Welcome. Thank you for coming this evening. Um, I'm Tamara. I'm Paul, obviously. How about that? <laughs> you can see us later. We'll be doing our comedy routine. Um, thank you so much. I realize they opened the doors early, but thank you so much for coming tonight. We think you'll be blessed and your eyes will be opened. I wanted to thank our speakers for coming this evening. Uh, Mark Meckler, Senator Tom Coburn, Miss Janine Turner, and of course, Representative Scott Turner. Thank you so much for participating. <laughs> Yes, we want to thank everyone here. I tell folks every chance I get, I work with the best folks in the world. And all of you Convention of States folks, we do want to, we do want to recognize anybody here who's with the Convention of States team in the DFW area, especially so folks can see you. Raise your hand up, please. This is a great turnout. We have great folks. If you, want to, if you want to have a conversation after the event, go ahead and find one of these people. We'll be milling about and around. We, we love to see you all here. Uh, we're going to have a great night tonight. Thank you. Okay, a little bit about the agenda. We're going to have uh, quick pledges, then a prayer by Scott. And uh, we've got Janine Turner here tonight. That's, uh, she's going to make some brief remarks on the Constitution. And then Mark and Senator Coburn are going to give about a 20-minute presentation. And what I really liked about the program tonight is we're going to have over an hour for Q&A. So I'm really excited about that. And thank you, Mark and Tom, for making yourselves available for that. So Larry Wainer is going to come up and give us the pledge right now. Then Scott will follow him with the prayer. Y'all, please remain standing. Sorry about that. I didn't get up here quick enough. Yeah, yeah. I used to be real fast, but anyway. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this tremendous opportunity to gather together tonight. God, I thank you for Tamara and Paul and the Convention of States team for their efforts Father, for everyone who was involved to put this forum on tonight, thank you for Mark and Senator Coleman and Janine and others who are speaking. And God, we just thank you that your wisdom, Father God, will come forth. That God, you would teach us, Father God, that you would speak to us tonight. And Lord, I thank you for every individual, man and woman who is here tonight. Father, I pray for their families. Lord God, that you would bless them immensely. 
that God, you would show up in a mighty way on their behalf. Lord, I thank you that they come out tonight and spend time, these true patriots of America, Father, who care so deeply about their country, who care so deeply, Father, about their convictions, who care so deeply, Father God, about the future of this nation. God, I'm grateful for them. So many things we could be doing tonight, but Father, you brought us together here tonight, a divine appointment, and for that, we're grateful. And we do not take it for granted, Father. We will not forfeit your grace. Show up, God, tonight mightily. We thank you for it. God, I pray for our military men and women who are serving our country. Father, who are fighting for the freedoms that we enjoy. Father, for freedom is never free. It's only one generation away from extinction. Father, help us to continue to pray for our military, to support and to love, Father, our service men and women. Bring them home safely. Lord God, let them know how important they are to us. Father God, the United States of America. And Father, I do pray for our nation that we will bow the knee, that we will turn away from our wicked ways, that we, Jesus, will put you back on the throne where you belong, that we would not turn our face away from the word. We would not turn our face away from the sovereign king, but we will come to you, run to you, Father, and bow down at your throne. We need you now. The answer is not in the government. The answer is not in Washington. The answer is not in Austin. The answer is in the kingdom of heaven, and we thank you, God. Now, Lord, I pray for tonight to be just an amazing, fantastic informational father god just an encouraging time bless the speakers give them wisdom and clarity father as they speak give us ears to hear lord god as you move mightily in this place we thank you together for it we love you we honor you in jesus name amen so i get to introduce my friend janine turner that I've known for a while. Um, after paying her dues in Hollywood, she returned home to her native Texas to raise her daughter and fan the flames of fire to protect America. Most importantly, she is a lover of the Constitution. She currently writes for the Washington Times and Washington Examiner and is a frequent guest on Fox News, with her passion now being to educate America's youth on the Constitution. Janine, welcome. Thank you, Tamara, and thank you, everybody, for being here. Howdy. Howdy. Okay, can you hear me? I got kind of a sideways mic here. Well, all right. I'm a Texan, first and foremost. My dad's from Athens, Texas. My mom from San Antonio. Uh, the first thing I did when Northern Exposure was picked up for 50 episodes was buy a pickup truck and a horse. And then I bought a ranch. So that's where I live now, my ranch with my daughter, Juliet, um, north, north of Denton, south of Gainesville. And I'm really, really honored to be here tonight. I thank the Convention of States and for the Park City's Preston Hollow Leadership Forum for inviting me here. And I, I only have like six or seven minutes. I don't think I've ever spoken that quickly in my life. So I feel like I should be one of those ads. You need to know the Constitution. You need to, anyway. Um, so my dad uh, was a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. And he was one, of the, back then in 1957, um, it was Army Air Force, so he joined the Air Force and was one of the first to fly twice the speed of sound in the 1960s in the B-58 Hustler. And some of you may know that aircraft here. So I was raised uh, in a very patriotic household. My dad didn't talk a lot, so it's not like we had a lot of, lot of discussions about 
politics at the table. But, you know, I'm an actress. How did I go from being an actress to launching Constituting America? I think I was just born with this. When I was eight years old, I looked up at my father and said, Dad, if our, and I remember this moment, if our founding fathers were to come back today, what would they be most disappointed about? <laughs> what eight-year-old asked that question? But you want to know what my father said? Yes. Taxes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you think about taxes and how it's influenced our lives and, and uh, the, the talk about government's grown from taxes, it's even influenced marriage, all these things, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty smart answer. So I want to talk to you about my foundation, Constituting America. I launched it in 2010 to educate adults and children about the United States Constitution using the arts. I think you have folders. You can, you can learn more about it. Um, through that, I won't go into it for a lot, uh, a lot tonight. But the thing is, adults and kids, adults and kids, don't know what's in the United States Constitution. And we asked these kids to do PSAs for us, and, and they do these amazing works. And one was a great ad where this kid was in the car and he had blindfolds on, and he's like, "What are you, what are you wearing a blindfold for?" And he takes it off because, you know, 90% of Americans are voting blind. You know, the majority of Americans don't even know what's in the First Amendment. Everything's in the First Amendment. So we don't want our rising generations to be blind about the United States Constitution. And how, because it's being ignored, we have this tremendously huge federal government. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Treaties. We all know that we just had the Iranian Treaty. So uh, here, what happened here? Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 means that any treaty has to be ratified by the Senate. What do they do now? They change the name to executive agreements. Oh, well, we just will change the name, and then it won't have to be ratified by the Senate. Well, we, the American people, have been asleep, and so they, we just don't pay any attention. It's a treaty. Anytime a foreign a official, official deals with a foreign government, it's a treaty. So what, you know, what did they do at Congress this year? They decided they were going to do a bill. To, to, why are we doing a bill? I mean, if you do a bill, the president can veto it. We didn't even need that in the first place. We could have just done it through Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. Stick to the Constitution. Stick to the limited government. Stick to the enumerated powers, which is all why we, what we all want here tonight. Another example. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2. Congress shall declare war. Well, this is certainly being ignored for years and years and years and years. It was, so, it was so ignored, they decided they had to pass the War Powers Resolution under Nixon to, to, to curb the president from sending troops, committing troops into harm's way. Why don't we just stick with Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2? Let's just stick with that. president can't send any troops anywhere without Congress's approval. A lot of people like the War Powers Act, but far, as far as I'm concerned, as a strict constitutionalist, we didn't need it in the first place. We need to call it back and say, Article, one, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, any executive agreement, any, Republicans and Democrats have done this both, it should be ratified purely by the Senate where it cannot be overturned. War Powers Resolution, why do we need that? It's already in the Constitution. What's also in the Constitution? Two ways to amend it. Aren't we lucky about that? My daughter and I speak all over the country. I gave 60, 75 speeches last year alone. And it dawned on us, we kind of turned to each other and looked at each other at one point and says, weren't they brilliant, our founding fathers? One way to amend the, con to amend the Constitution is, is to do it through Congress. But didn't they have this amazing foresight to say, you know what? Congress may not sometimes do what they need to do. We will give it back to the people. 
How brilliant was that? It can be done through Congress or it can be done through a convention of states. Now, a lot of Americans today, you'll hear some rumblings, are afraid of the convention of states. I am not afraid of the convention of states. It is time to take our country back. It is time for the states to have their power that we were supposed to have in the first place. It is it's time to have a convention of states. Um, and as I say, because I only have 67 minutes here, and I guess I should wrap it up, but Patrick Henry said... Are you, during the, right before the revolution, are we going to be a people of action or are we going to lie supinely on our backs clutching the delusive phantom of hope? No longer, yeah, no longer can we just hope that things are going to turn out. The federal government does not want to curb itself. It is time that we do it. And I do not believe we should be afraid of a convention of states. We cannot lie back and continue to clutch the delusive phantom of hope. Our founding fathers were not afraid, and I believe we cannot be afraid as well. So thank you. God bless. Appreciate the opportunity to talk. All right. Our guest tonight, um, Dr. Tom Colburn. Obviously, we know him as a former U.S. Senator from Oklahoma. For 10 years, Senator Colburn served in the United States Senate as a voice for limited government, common sense fiscal policy, and the values of Oklahomans. He has been described as one of the most sought after members on legislative strategy and thought, especially when it comes to waste, fraud, and abuse by the federal government. Annually, he published his waste book to alert Americans to that fiscal abuse. Now as a senior advisor to the Convention of States project, he's bringing those talents to the grassroots and state legislatures. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Mark Meckler, he's one of the nation's most effective grassroots activists. He founded the Citizens following his co-founding of the Tea Party Patriots to focus on expanding and supporting the grassroots in a nonpartisan self-governance movement. The premier project is the, is the Convention of States, which is organizing a national grassroots effort calling for an Article 5 amending convention to restrict the power, size, and scope of the federal government, returning power ultimately back to the citizens. Gentlemen, welcome tonight, and thank you for being here. First of all, thank you for allowing us to come and speak with you. Thanks for being here. Um, <clears throat> I'm a 67-year-old grandfather of eight, uh, married to the same wife for 47, almost 48 years, and I love our country. I have a, a background that's not a typical politician's background. I was a, built a business, took it public, sold it, went to med school, when I was in my 30s, everybody called me grandpa in med school. <clears throat> As back then, that, it wasn't cool to be old when you were in med school then. Uh, and I finally got disgusted in 1994. I was disgusted with what was happening in our country. I was disgusted with my representative. I, I lived in a district of 84% registered Democrats. Uh, and I said, somebody besides a politician has got to do something. So long story short, I ran, term limited myself, came home, delivered another thousand or so babies, and uh, was moving along fine until people talked me into running for the U.S. Senate. And I did, and I won. Uh, and I spent 10 years working as hard as I could every day to fix what was wrong in Washington. And I came to the conclusion in 2012 that you couldn't fix it there. That's my experience. 
Now, to make it truth, that's my experience. I outlined $400 billion documented by the General Accounting Office of fraud, waste, and duplication. Couldn't get Republicans or Democrats to help eliminate it because it all had a constituency which would help them get reelected. Uh, did the vote on the bridge to nowhere? Now, they all claim they voted for it now. There was only 12 of us when we actually <laughs> lost that amendment. But the, the fact is, is two years before I left, I told the leader I was leaving. And then I left. And the last year, I'll never forget, going around Oklahoma, I'd go to do all 77 counties and do a town hall, and people were just probably like you. What are we going to do about our country? And my answer most of the time, until I really started researching it, until I met Mark Meckler, was, is we're going to pray. And then God kind of answered my question. He brought Mark Meckler and Mike Ferris into my life and expanded my knowledge of Article 5. And I said, oh, that's what we're waiting for. Our founders were brilliant in that they gave us, the citizens, where the power was supposed to reside, the ability to change things when things got out of hand. So I have stage four prostate cancer right now. I'm in my, <clears throat> this uh, Friday I'll start my fifth chemo drug. <clears throat> but I've dedicated the rest of my life to trying to fix our country. And so, and Mark can tell you, without hair and pure white, uh, the last round of chemo he saw me go around, it is worth it to me if we actually accomplish this because all my time in politics will not do come anywhere close to what this will do in terms of securing the future for those eight grandchildren. So <clears throat> I'm here, and I've, I was in 21 states last year, working with state legislators, answering questions, explaining why it'll never get fixed in Washington. And it's not that people are bad in Washington, they're just politicians. And they want to get reelected more than they want to fix our country. And that's the problem. We can all identify with that. We all rationalize things to ourselves. So it doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them wrong. And what we have to do is what our founders allowed us to do. And, you know, my big deal is I want to cheat history. You know what history says about republics? They all die. And they, they all die starting with fiscal issues. Today, in our country, we have $143 trillion of unfunded liabilities. Now, <clears throat> last year, the CBO told you that the deficit was $427 billion. But they didn't tell you about the $5.6 trillion of additional unfunded liabilities that were added. Right? So they look at a cash flow statement, and we look at financial statements. The balance sheet means something. That $143 trillion is a million dollars per taxpayer in this country right now. That's how you bring it down to be able to understand how much money that is. That's not survivable. We can't cheat history with that. So we have to change it. <clears throat> how do we change it? I'm going to let Mark come up and tell you how we change it, tell you why he's involved in it. But I know what America's made up of. And I've been all across this country we all know something's really not right. 
What we do know is our founders gave us a way to fix it. And that's what we're trying to do. We passed already this year, earliest part of the legislative history, Tennessee passed this year. We'll have 16 or 17 other states passed this year. We're well on our way to 34 states. Mark, come up and explain. Mark Meckler. Thank you guys for being here. You know, as the senator and I were driving up to this museum tonight, I, I was just amazed. There's a museum of biblical art. I thought that makes perfect sense. But I come from a Calif California where it's probably illegal to have a museum of biblical art. This <laughs> is kind of shocking to me to be here in Texas. I'm always happy to be here in Texas because this is the heart of freedom in America. I mean, this is really where freedom's heart beat beats the loudest in the country. Last night, I was, I was flying into Austin last night from California. As I was landing in Austin, I took a picture out the window. I sent it out to all our staff around the country and said, if it all falls down, this is where we're all headed, right? <laughs> it's really the truth. This is, this is the center of liberty in America. And so, you know, I want to give you a little bit of my own history so you understand why I'm doing this. I come out of the Tea Party movement. My background is uh, I'm a lawyer. I hope you won't hold it against me. I was working from home. My specialty is some little arcane field called internet advertising law, and then the Tea Party movement happened. And like so many of us in the country, I was inspired. Everything I heard made perfect sense to me. I went out, held one of the first protests in the country in Sacramento, California. Had no idea what I was getting into. Ended up riding a wave to building the largest Tea Party organization in the country with a co-founder, Tea Party Patriots. Ended up with 23 million members, 3,400 chapters. Congress changes over the biggest change between parties in 2010 that we'd seen since the 1930s. It was radical, it was transformative. We were so excited for that session to come in. And then, nothing changed. They told us, of course, if they only had the Senate that everything would be different because they're only one branch, right? And then we got the Senate, it was so exciting because we actually got the Senate, and then, nothing changed. Now we're in a presidential election. They tell us if we elect the right president that everything will be different, right? I see lots of people shaking their heads. As I travel around the country, I haven't met anybody who actually believes that. I don't believe it. I'd love to hear a president say that they're gonna dedicate their presidency to taking away the power of the president, taking away the power of the Supreme Court, taking away the power of Congress and giving it back to the American people. Does anybody believe that any of these folks are gonna say that when they get to DC? Goes against human nature. It's not what we do. When we get power, we hold on to power. We tend to consolidate power. It's just what people do. So like Tom, I was traveling all around the country, 34 states last year. This is my eighth state this year. And people kept asking me, Mark, what do we do? What do we do? It's not just a rhetorical question when you're a grassroots leader and you're supposed to have answers. I'm supposed to tell people what the plan is. And I would lay in bed at night and think, I don't know. I don't know, pray. I mean, I'm glad we all pray. We've been praying for this country for a long time. Hopefully you have, I have. But the, the reality is that's not a plan. And then Mike Ferris brought the Convention of States to me and I actually saw the plan. Because it's a plan that allows us to go around Congress, to go around the president, to go around the courts, and to do what the founders said we should always do, which is to be engaged citizens who actually were in control of the government. We are, after all, sovereign citizens, right? Okay, so that's what the founders intended. It's really instructive how Article 5, the second clause that gives us this power, got into the Constitution. Not really commonly known history. 
Two days before the end of the convention is September 15, 1787. Colonel George Mason from Virginia stands to address the assembly. Remember, two days left, they're getting ready to go home. Mason says to the assembly, we have a fundamental flaw with the document we've drafted. We've given the power to Congress to propose amendments should they deem them necessary, but we didn't give that power to the people acting through the states. And he asked this question, he said, are we so naive that we actually believe that a government that becomes a tyranny will propose appropriate amendments to restrain its own tyranny? I mean, you guys giggle, I imagine them slapping their foreheads, right? Oh, how did we forget that? And in fact, that's pretty much what Madison's notes reflect. Madison's notes are just like this long. There's no debate. They debated everything, right? I'm sure they debated the arrangement of the tables there. They didn't debate this. It was so obvious to the men assembled that they needed to give that power to the states that they unanimously adopted the second provision of Article 5, giving you, the people, the power to call a convention specifically for what? To restrain federal tyranny. They knew. They studied human nature, they studied history, they studied government, they knew that the government would centralize and eventually we the people would be forced to push back. So here we are today, hundreds of years later, we haven't used Article 5 ourselves, Congress has used it multiple times, but we've never used it. And I ask you, are we living under federal tyranny today? Yes. And we all just admitted that Congress isn't going to fix it. The president isn't going to fix this. You know, some of us thought maybe until last year, maybe the Supreme Court, how'd that work out for us? <laughs> so if they're not going to fix it, who's gonna fix it? We are. we are, that's right. You know, sometimes I imagine myself sitting with the founders and complaining about the problems that we're having in America today. And specifically, I think of Dr. Benjamin Franklin because he was just kind of crusty and cantankerous. And I imagine sitting with him and explaining all the problems we have and we have Obamacare and we have this and we have that. And I imagine him saying, what about Article 5? Have you used Article 5? And, and I imagine myself saying, well, you know, Dr. Franklin, there's a lot of people who are kind of scared about... And I mean, I imagine him slamming that pint of ale down on the table and saying, you're bothering me, boy. Go do Article 5. Come back and tell me how it works out. It's not an option. It's a moral obligation. Amen. People spilled blood to give us that Constitution. Yeah. People have spilled blood over the centuries to keep that Constitution intact, keep our freedom for us. And so we face a critical choice in American history right now. We are at a pivotal moment. We live, as Mark Levin says, in a post-constitutional republic. That's not our Constitution that we live under anymore. You know, we will hear people say to us all the time, well, the Constitution is just fine how it is. If they would just follow the Constitution, everything would be okay. Right? Well, here's the reality. Unfortunately, we have two constitutions in America now. We have the one in the National Archives under glass, and we love that constitution. It's an incredible document. And then we have the constitution we're forced to live under. Anybody know how big that one is? It's over 2,000 pages. That's our constitution. Interpreted, twisted, perverted by the Supreme Court of the United States of America. That's the constitution we live under. And so that's the reality we face. And we have to deal with the reality, right? Some people say reality is an acquired taste, but the reality is that one under glass isn't our Constitution anymore. With Tom and I and so many others now, 1.2 million activists around the country are fighting for is to restore the vision of the founders, to go back to something that looks like that original Constitution. Anybody think we should go back to that original document? Yes. So here's the deal. If you believe that, 
And I'm pretty sure that almost everybody in this room believes that there's only one way. There's only one way, right? Electing people without restore the Constitution, without reverse all that precedent. No, it can't change it. It's legally not possible, literally not possible. How about that we just keep trying to go to the Supreme Court? You know, we tried this, right? So you get the right case coming up from the right district through the right appellate courts, framed the right way with the right plaintiff, and you put it in front of the right Supreme Court, and then you cross paths with, say, John Roberts. <laughs> Anybody think we have another 100, 150 years to correct our jurisprudence? We don't. We have one choice. To those who say that we shouldn't do this, I ask this question, what is our alternative? Everyone is in agreement. The country essentially has failed. Tom described over $140 trillion in unfunded liabilities. I honestly don't even know what that means. Tom had to break it down for us, a million dollars per taxpayer. It's unbelievable. It's unfathomable and it is untenable. The Republic will not survive. We have reached this critical moment in history. History is going to judge us. Everybody in this room, this entire country, we will be judged by history one way or another. We've reached a fork in the road. We have a choice to make. Ronald Reagan called it a rendezvous with destiny, right? We have a choice to make. Will we take the action that's necessary? Will we call the convention? Or will we sentence our children to take the first step into a thousand years of darkness? That's the question facing us today. This is an existential question. Today, 1.2 million activists have answered that question. They're not going to sit on the sidelines and watch this country fall. Today, 37 state legislatures have resolutions introduced calling for a convention of states. Never before in American history have so many state legislatures introduced identical resolutions. We've made history already. It's incredible. The people are on the march. Florida, Georgia, Alaska, Alabama, and just last week, Tennessee became the fifth state to pass the Convention of States resolution. We passed the Indiana Senate with flying colors. We came out of the Arizona House. New Mexico passed it out of their house. It's incredible what's happening. Amazing hearing in Ohio today. These are rising all across this country because they are doing what their birthright is. They are behaving as sovereign citizens. You know, you're going to hear a lot. People are going to tell you if you talk about this idea that you should be scared that we're going to lose our Constitution. Tom and I are going to answer as many questions as you want. The, mainly, we've set it up to be a q and I'm going to answer some of those questions in advance first. People say the convention's going to run away. We're going to lose our Constitution. What do you think is going to happen if we don't have a convention? <laughs> right? We've already lost it. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is, let me just give you the end game. You gotta forgive me, I went to public school in Los Angeles, California, so my math isn't so good. <laughs> but I can add and subtract at about a third grade level. And here's how the math works, right? Let's presume that everything that the naysayers and the fear mongers say is true, and the convention goes crazy, and it's taken over by wild people from California, and they propose craziness, and maybe they even propose the repeal of the Second Amendment. I hear this all the time, I see it in emails, I hear people say it to me. So you gotta ask yourself this question, it takes 38 states to ratify any amendment, flip that math on its head, only 13 states to stop any amendment. This is what you have to believe if you believe in the runaway convention, not an option by the way. If runaway's in your mind, this has to be in your mind also. The 13 most conservative states in America, states like Texas, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, the Carolinas, 
the Dakota, Oklahoma. Thank you, Tom. You have to believe that Oklahoma will vote to take away your guns. Is there anybody in here who actually believes that? It's crazy. But I'm going to tell you something about fear. Fear is one of the most powerful human emotions there is. And when people tell you you're scared, you're going to hear some things that come out of fear. People get a little bit irrational. It gets a little bit squirrely when people are scared. And I understand that. And it's okay that there are people who are scared. We should always address people's questions. We're going to do that openly, directly here, politely. We love everybody. And by the way, the folks who are opposed to this, there are a lot of folks on our side. I say it's a small minority, but there are a significant number of folks that are scared. We love them anyway. They love our Constitution. They love this country. They come from the exact same place that Tom and I do. They care about this country deeply. They care about their posterity. And so everybody, as we travel around the country, they're going to get treated with respect. They're going to get the time they deserve to ask the questions, and we're going to do everything we can to answer those questions. So I want to close with a brief story for you guys. You know, uh, how many in here have studied more American history in the last few years than they did in their entire lives? Raise your hand. That's really hopeful, by the way, right? Our public schools aren't doing a good job. We got to do it ourselves. So that's fantastic. You know, when we teach American history in our public schools, we teach what I call the great man theory of American history and, and world history in general. In other words, well, who do we study? We study Washington and Adams and Madison and Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. That's what we're taught in our schools. And it's good that we learn those things. They're really inspiring stories, right? But if you want to know the real story of the American Revolution, that's not the real story. The real story is made up of people like you, regular people in town hall meetings that got together because they cared about what was going on here on this continent. They cared about this great idea of liberty that had developed in this country. Those are the people of the American Revolution. And my very favorite story from the American Revolution is about a gentleman named Levi Preston. Captain Preston served in the Continental Army. He was right there at the first battle of the American Revolution. In 1843, he was 91 years old, and he was interviewed by one Mellon Chamberlain, who was 26 years old and a school teacher who was collecting the oral histories of the last remaining Minutemen. 91 years old, by the way, back then is real old, right? Average life expectancy was 54. So Chamberlain asked Preston a series of questions, and it goes something like this. He said, Captain Preston, when you went out to face those redcoats that day on the field of battle, what is it that drove you to fight them? Was it the Stamp Act? Were you frustrated by having to buy those stamps and place them in all your documents? Preston said, never saw one of them. The governor locked him up in the armory. That's the last we heard of it. <laughs> so Chamberlain, knowing his American history, said, was it the tea tax? You were frustrated by those outrageous taxes on the tea. He said, I was a farmer. We never drank any tea. Boys dumped it in the harbor. We thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> that was the end of that. He asked him, were you reading the great revolutionaries? And he named all the great revolutionary authors of the time. And Preston said, son, we read the Almanac, the Bible, Psalms, Catechism. That was about it. Never heard of any of the men you mentioned. And so Chamberlain goes big and he says, was it just British tyranny? Were you just tired of the heavy hand of British tyranny? He said, never felt a whit of it. <laughs> Chamberlain says, what is it? What drove you out on the field of battle that day to fight those redcoats? And he said, son, when we went to fight those redcoats, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves, and we always meant to. And them redcoats, they meant that we shouldn't. That's it, the greatest summary 
of the political philosophy of the American Revolution I've ever heard in my life. And I would posit that today, that same spirit of self-governance is alive in America, and that's what drives the Convention of States movement. Thank you guys very much for being here tonight. Okay, friends, we've got three microphones to the right, to the left, and to the center, so feel free to line up uh, behind them. As Mark said, we're gonna keep things really uh, respectful tonight. Uh, as uh, Bill O'Reilly would say, no bloviating, so let's uh, keep it to questions and uh, not so much editorializing. We've got, um, man, we've got over an hour, so what, uh, what a great opportunity to talk to uh, Dr. Coburn and Mark. So, gentlemen, here you go. Okay, I have a question about um, the people who will actually go to the convention. Like, who are those people? Who would they be? And can you speak to that? And so we can quote some. Great question. Each state will decide who represents them at convention, but each state only gets one vote. So you can send 30 of your legislators, you can send 30 of your county commissioners, you could send whoever you want to send. And then you can give them instructions. A lot of the states are, when they pass this, are passing what's called delegate limitation amendments. That says, here's what our application says. Here's what your authority is. If you violate that, anything you've done doesn't count. Even some states have added that if you violate it, it's a felony in our state. Wow. So, so the idea is, is the, it's, real, it's about real liberty. Texas gets to decide who you send. Oklahoma gets to decide. I hope they send me. You know, I'll fight hard. But the point is, there is accountability to who is sent, and your legislatures will decide that. I'm pretty sure California's sending 100 hippies on a psychedelic bus. <laughs> I won't do that. All right, right here in the center. Yeah, I have another question on the who sent then. We're from Texas, a very conservative, you know, awesome state. My house speaker is Strauss, and Strauss does not pass conservative legislation. He passes liberal things, and my legislation votes him in. So that would make me concerned. We also have Cornyn, who is not representing me well. Sessions is not representing me well in Washington, D.C. So, you know, what is my comfort level that my really conservative state of Texas sends truly conservative people who will honor the intent of the Constitution? I understand, you know, the stuff, the stuff about they'll be called back, but who's saying why they're called back? Is it we the people, or is it the people that are elected? Well, even though you have Strauss as your leader in the House, this passed the Texas House last year. So, so there's kind of proof in the pudding, is we got this through the Texas House. So the question, you, you know, the, you're responsible for who you elect here. One of the reasons the founders wanted you to be in charge and wanted the state legislators to be the most powerful is because you have more power over them than you ever have over a Corning or a Cornyn or a Sessions. And even with more power, we haven't been able to get a better speaker. You know, so I, I think that's a, that's a concern so, I don't so, know what to do with. Good. So your answer is, since you have that problem, don't do anything. 
No, my answer is how am I going to overcome that? I'm you, a racing chairman. I'm, you know, I'm involved in a lot of things. Right. I do everything I know how to do, and I'm I'm working against people who, um, who, okay. uh, support straws. So, as an outsider who knows Texas politics pretty well, this is my home away from home. Here's the good news: your legislature is getting better, right? And it is getting better. Increment. Look, you your Senate got pretty good. Right, and so, and your house is getting better and better, and what we're seeing is leadership is getting peeled away one by one. Right, the onion layers around leadership—it's happening slowly but surely. There's a there's a war going on, and it's not unique to Texas, by the way. This is really important. When I travel around the country, I'll tell you. Here's what everybody thinks about Texas politics: you guys are red state nirvana, right? <laughs> they think you have achieved perfection here in Texas. I understand that that's not the case, but the good news is nationally, what's going on. You've got 31 states with both houses controlled by Republicans. The red states are getting redder. The purple states are moving red. The blue states are moving to the center. So we're, we're headed in the right direction. And ultimately, it's about the whole country. And the whole country is more conservative than it's been in a very long time. So I'm not so worried about Texas individually or Oklahoma or California. The country is at the right moment for this movement. <clears throat> If uh, Joe Strauss is not, not a proper speaker for the House, then he needs to be replaced in an election. The subject at hand is a convention of the states. It's been passed in the Texas House, correct? Right. And we know Governor Abbott is for it very much so. Yeah. What's the holdup in the Senate, if any? Right. So we, we, have, to start, we have to start over because they don't have a, what's called a holdover. Some states hold over. <clears throat> so that means next cycle we'll start again in the House. I don't think we're going to have a problem in the House. We had a few senators that were a problem this, this last cycle that held us up. And I actually think uh, that most of them are going to come our way. Frazier was one of them and he's retired. And uh, you know I think we've made a lot of progress with the other two who held us up. I don't think we're going to have a problem in the Texas Senate. I think come your next session we're just going to get it done. God bless George Mason. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, this is a huge, huge effort. This sort of reminds me of the efforts to ratify the Constitution originally, where you'd had, you had to go state by state to make the case for why the Constitution should be approved. Uh, one of the huge, huge stumbling blocks to this that I see is the inevitable opposition of the liberal news media in conjunction with the moneyed elites in both parties opposing this, because this goes to the core of threatening the status quo. Have you thought through the media strategy and the national messaging that we're going to have to mount to rally enough people to make this succeed? Mark's going to tell you the strategy. I'm going to tell you what's happening. People in this country don't care what the media says anymore. <laughs> and they also don't care what the political powerful elites say anymore. And so what is really happening is a true grassroots. We're adding 1,000 people a day right now. I think we'll be, in, in two years, I think we'll be at 4 million plus active volunteers. It doesn't matter how much media they spend. Now, we do have a plan. I'm not involved in it. I'm, I'm out here to get the grassroots going and get work on legislature. But Mark and the team has a communication strategy, have a plan. We've already run some radio ads and TV ads in places where we thought it would do us some good. We actually even hire lobbyists where we think it'll do us some good. So there is a plan. But the point is, is it, it doesn't have to be 
nationwide. What it has to be is 34 state legislators passing a joint resolution that doesn't require the government, doesn't require the judges to do anything. And once that happens, it's over. There's going to be a convention of the states. So, but what I still think what you're saying is important. So, uh, something happened in the last couple of weeks which I thought was pretty extraordinary, which is the left all of a sudden stood up and took notice. Right, and uh, to be honest with you, I didn't expect that to happen so soon. I figured we'd get to 20, 25 states before they took us seriously. Uh, USA Today wrote a just scathing op-ed against what we were doing. It, it was one of the most ignorant tirades I've ever seen. I mean, they had no understanding of Article 5, how it works. It was written by somebody maybe hasn't even read that article of the Constitution. So they did it. Uh, this last week, Common Cause, which is one of George Soros's main funding groups, came out with a piece against Article 5. So they're starting to unite, right? I was in the, in the New Mexico legislature. We saw Common Cause and Sierra Club step up against this. So this is something I didn't expect so soon. I think it came out of Rubio's endorsement and then Governor Abbott's endorsement. When that happened, they started paying attention. So, but here's the real strategy. I'm going to agree with a lot of what Tom says, which is the mainstream media isn't so important anymore because we are the media. Okay, so all over the country, this is what's happening. Tamara, who, who you met earlier, is training state media liaisons in every state in the country. These are folks that know the media in their own state. They know the newspaper editors in, in the big and small towns. They know the radio producers. And so we're able to get our message out no matter what the mainstream media says to us. And when it comes time, we have the capacity and the wherewithal to do major national media. We did a major blitz on the Mark Levin show a while back. We're very frugal about how we spend our money. We, we did a test run on Mark for one quarter. It went really well. But we don't need to spend that money right now. When the time comes, we'll spend the money. There are donors who support us. By the way, right now, we're pushing close to 50,000 donors from all around the country. So we will have the resources we need. I do not underestimate the war that that will be. It will be a war. You're right. We're going right at the jugular of the beast. We'll take them. Yeah. <laughs> it seems today that the minority is ruling over the majority. The Republican-controlled House and Senate in a way, refusing to combat the Obama administration's violations of the balance of power, will a constitution of states polarize the liberal minority or civil unrest? And if so, what are we doing to combat the risk? First of all, it's not a constitution of the states. It's a convention of the states. That's very important because one of the opponents, several of the opponents of this movement say you're going to have a constitutional convention. We're not. We're going to have a convention of the states, which means we're very specific in the areas in which we're going to have options to amend the Constitution. All right. So that's number one. It's very limited. It also, though, it's very it's broad enough to address the ills, the ills that ail us today. The second thing I would say and to your question, if we don't do this, we're going to have real problems. Uh, and I, I traveled 21 states last year, and, and I've got a pretty good ear for people. You know, I've delivered 4,500 babies. I, I got to know something. You know, uh, I for sure know women. Uh, I was raised by four of them, my three daughters and my wife. Uh, and what I will tell you is we're at a very dangerous time in our country. People are at the edge. And so let me just give you an example. What happened in Oregon? Now, they were, 
Those guys out there violated federal statute. There's no question about it. They were in the wrong. But what they were trying to accomplish was right. So you've already seen the first vestiges of anarchy because of an overreaching federal government. And so people are in jail today, and rightly so. But if we don't do this, you're going to see a whole lot more of that. And I can tell you, uh, I don't dare say in public what I really think about that because I'm really worried that we won't solve our problems peacefully and that we'll do another method. And this is the way we keep that from happening. Also, I want to add that um, when we talk about liberal versus conservative, you know, so we're dealing with a partisan ideology. 71% of Americans today say that the federal government is too big and does too much. That's, there aren't 71% of America that are Republicans or even self-identified conservatives. I speak in Austin, Texas. I speak in Berkeley, California, San Francisco, Marin, some of the most liberal places in the country. And when I ask folks there, do you want Washington, D.C. to decide or do you want to decide, you know what they say? Us, at home. It doesn't matter what their ideology is. It doesn't matter what their party affiliation is. I've got good friends in Berkeley, California, and they want to decide for themselves. So the issue of convention of states is really important that we keep this clear. It's not about partisanship. It's not about a party. I'm, I'm not a registered member of any party, right? California, I have the glamorous title of uh, declared or undecided, right? I, I'm confused. <laughs> But the real deal is when you talk to Americans, I was in 34 states last year, they're all frustrated with the federal government. They don't believe that they're duly represented in Washington, D.C. And this is the unifying theme. The question facing America today is not what should we do, it's who decides. I trust the American people to decide, especially in state legislatures, county boards, close to home. That's where I really trust the American people. So I don't think this divides us, I actually think it unites us. Uh, what concerns me is how we downstream, how we, once the people are together, you mentioned there was dialogue uh, as the Constitution was being written, and I believe those letters were published in the news so people could keep up and have input. And I was hoping there would be some kind of a public accessible wiki with uh, uh, problem statements, critical success factors, uh, specifications and uh, proposed wording. I, I just was wondering how are we going to be able to monitor the process as these uh, amendments start to take shape? Yeah, I think that's a great question. By the way, in the original convention, they actually sequestered themselves. Everything was secret. They covered the windows. They weren't allowed to talk to anybody. What were the do-good letters? Not familiar with that. Okay. So uh, maybe there was some leak, but the, the reality was they, they were sequestered. That's not possible today with all the digital media we have. I imagine it's going to be like the Super Bowl of politics. I think there will be cameras on the convention floor. Uh, these guys are going to be texting and tweeting and Instagramming and periscoping. The legislatures are going to be involved in what's going on. They're going to be watching their delegates every minute of every day. And most of the legislatures I've been to, they say their intent is to be live streaming and have a committee that watches it every time, every moment these guys are in session. So I expect it is going to be political spectacle and we will know every second of every proceeding there. I would hope there's also some discipline with a long-range running dialogue versus just the tweets and the uh, Facebook. Well, I think folks are just going to be watching it live. 
is what's going to be happening. So, yeah, I think I we're going to. I don't think that manages the process very good, and that was my point. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Coburn, um, when I got married five years ago to that little redhead girl, uh, they told me about you, and I started watching you pretty attentively uh, through C-SPAN and YouTube broadcasts and whatnot. And, uh, I think you did your due diligence in Washington, and I think you did right by the people that put you in office. And I want you to know that the K's and the Jernigans appreciate so much the stand you took while you were there. Uh, you're brought up quite often <laughs> around the dinner table when we're doing family dinners. But my question uh, is, so we proceed with the Convention of States, we have it, we make the changes. How do we begin to even pay off $140 trillion of unfunded liabilities? There's, that's a, there's not that much money in print. There's not even close to that much money in print. You know, yeah, we could print it. <laughs> how, do you, how do you propose we go about doing that? And then also, yeah, there you go. Uh, the other question, kind of hand in hand with that is, what about the Federal Reserve? We've got a private organization that's printing money at its own leisure. Is that going to be something that's going to be addressed as well? First of all, thank you for your kind words and from your family. They're, they're dear to me know them well. Um, I don't think it's hard to solve our problems. But what I think it takes is courage, one. And number two, it takes sacrifice by everybody. Everybody. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, it's written by Marvin Olasky called The Tragedy of American Compassion. You recognize what's happened in our country. We've undermined self-reliance. That's what all socialist countries do first and created dependency. But we also have a social security system that allows somebody like me to draw social security when in fact it's $27 trillion in the hole. Well, it's ridiculous. I can make it without it. So I ought to be sacrificing that, right? So where's the leadership in our country that calls on us to sacrifice? I mean, that's what made this country great was sacrifice. It wasn't perfect. The first Constitution had fatal errors in it, right? And we corrected those. Now we have a court that totally ignores the Constitution. So can we solve those problems? You bet. Are they solvable? But we have to have leadership and we have to have rules so that we don't fall back into the exact same thing. The $400 billion in waste, fraud, and abuse, that would have put us in surplus last year on our cash budget. All right, we wouldn't have had to borrow any of that money. The, the, the federal employees, some of you may be here. Department of Economic Analysis, you make 77% all in more than the average American. Wow. 77% more for working for the federal government? That can't be right. So, so Federal employees will have to sacrifice some. So everybody has to sacrifice. Oklahoma's a, a recipient state. Texas is a donor state. Oklahoma's going to have to give up something. Right? Yes. <laughs> so the point is, 
we don't even have the discussion about solving those problems in Congress. They're, they're not even being discussed by the presidential candidates. None of them, they're afraid to talk about it. You know, we can't do that any longer. Whether we do convention or states or not, eventually the money men are gonna bite us in the hind end. Right? And it's gonna continue until it doesn't. And then what's gonna happen is the worst hardship you could ever imagine in this country. So we don't wanna get there. We're still the world's reserve currency. I don't like the Federal Reserve any more than you do. I think what they've done has been atrocious, but I don't see they get out of that unless we fix some of the problems first. And you have to give them one, one kudo. Monetary policy won't fix a nation when you don't have any fiscal policy to go along with it. And Congress all this time, and during the Bush administration and during the Obama administration, has not given them one bit of fiscal policy to help control the problems in this country. A lot of people say that there's going to be a runaway. Can you explain why that won't be the case if we, when we get to convention? Well, first of all, the runaway was based on what they claim was Federalist 40. All right? So let's just debunk that there was a federal runaway in the first one. Of the 13 representative states there, 11 came with specific instructions to do whatever you need to do to the Article Confederations to fix this. Two states, Massachusetts and New York, were two that did not have that complete instruction. New York never voted again after the New Jersey compromise failed. Two of their members left one state, but they never voted again. The only other one was Massachusetts, which said, we limit what you do. When it was brought to Massachusetts, Massachusetts fully agreed with their delegates that they did the right thing. So there was no runaway convention. The second thing that's really silly about that is the very people that claim that we had a runaway convention now love that Constitution so much that we shouldn't try to fix it. <laughs> that runaway one that was out of control, they don't think we should take a chance and use that Constitution to actually fix our country. So, you know, it's, it's schizophrenic in its thinking at best. So I want to add a little bit of uh, procedure to that, just to get a little bit technical with you guys so you understand how the process works um, very briefly. So the states file applications. The applications are identical from all the states. They limit the authority of the convention to speak to three subject matter areas, restraining the federal government on a fiscal basis, restraining the scope and jurisdiction of the federal government, and third is imposing term limits on the federal government, including, by the way, the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. So that's, that's the basic law of convention. So when your delegates go to convention, each delegate is, they're actually called commissioners. Each commissioner is given something called a commission. It's a piece of paper that says what they do or don't have the authority to do. Now, I assume your legislature uh, is going to elect people that they believe will follow their instructions. They're going to send people that they know and people that they trust to follow the instructions they're given. They're going to go to convention, and in convention, they're going to be in a convention with a bunch of people who were given similar instructions from their own legislatures. Now, let's assume a delegate gets out of control and raises their hand and says, I want to talk about the Second Amendment and repealing the Second Amendment. Any other delegate in there, somebody from Oklahoma or Texas, can raise their hand and say, excuse me, that's not germane to this convention. That's out of order. 
Right? Do you not think the conservative states are going to go crazy if people start talking about the Second Amendment? It's out of order. Right? So it's not legal. And let's say that all of them are drinking some amazing Kool-Aid in convention. <laughs> right? Nobody raises their hand and says anything. Now you have to believe in order to believe in a runaway. You've got to believe that your legislature is not watching. Right? I don't know. It's a, it's a six-month-long Super Bowl Sunday, and nobody's paying attention. Because if your legislature sees their delegates getting out of control, they're going to text them or call them on the phone and say, you can't do that, you can't say that, we're calling you home, we've just revoked your authority. And let's assume that the Kool-Aid's being drunk in every legislature around the country, they're not doing that, they're not paying attention to their delegates. So now you still have to get 26 states, the majority of the delegations, to pass something out of convention that we wouldn't like. Right, something out of convention with 26 states. And remember, 31 states, both houses controlled by Republicans right now. So you'd have to get 26 states to do something that we really didn't like, that limits our liberty. Then it goes out to the states. Now remember, they've exceeded their authority from the convention. They've violated their commissions. And guess what? A miracle happens. There's not a single conservative lawyer in America who stands up and says anything about that. This is what you have to believe. So the lawyers have all gone to sleep. They're all drinking the same Kool-Aid. And now it goes out and it still has to be ratified by 38 states. Still, the 13 most conservative states in America ha can stop anything that they want to. And remember, so you gotta believe if you believe they're not gonna do that. No conservative folks in America, are you guys gonna stand up if they try to repeal the Second Amendment? I think so, I think so right? and Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity and blah, blah, and, and every conservative legislator in America. So this idea that there could be a runaway is literally structurally, factually, and numerically impossible. Thank you. That, that really sounded good. <laughs> However, we've been trying to defund Planned Parenthood with all these conservative states and we haven't done it yet. And so there is that possibility, remote as it may be, that when they get into convention, those who are in the convention can change the rules of the convention, like they did in the first. And that's how we got the Constitution that we have today. Thank God we did it. We got it. But that is a possibility. And we must be honest enough to say that that is indeed a possibility. The other thing is this that I wanted to point out is that one of the duties of the sovereign state is to restrain the federal government to the restricted limitations specified in the Constitution. So there is an alternative here that you guys have not mentioned. It is the duty of the sovereign state to stand between its citizens and an out-of-control federal government. I think you would agree to that and particularly as it is articulated in Federalist 78. Alexander Hamilton said this, that if there is no principle that is clearer that when any a delegated authority goes contrary to the tenor of the commission, that which they do is null and void before it leaves Washington, D.C. and comes to the state of Texas. It is void. So therefore, the state of Texas and its legislators and its magistrate who swore an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of Texas must declare that any extra constitutional action on the part of the federal government and those of you who are lawyers and you are one know that extra constitutional means illegal 
gone beyond the enumerated duty specified to it within the Constitution is void. It's called interposition and nullification. Respond to that, please. Fantastically well stated and greatly appreciate your knowledge of history. The problem that we have in the the argument that I would have with you on that is it is correct that is extra constitutional and therefore you can practice interposition or potentially nullification if you want to go that direction. But the problem with that is you're presuming that the constitution that we have in place is the constitution is drafted by the founders. And unfortunately, according to our history of jurisprudence, the actual constitution that we have in place is the 2000 page document. And all these things that we claim are extra constitutional are actually today considered constitutional according to that 2000 page document. So a specific example, the best example that I know and one of my greatest frustrations with our current constitution as it's contained in that 2000 page document is the interstate commerce clause. It, that was a very narrowly drafted federal enumerated power designed to address a particular problem Right, a couple of states were close to military blows, New York and New Jersey, and so they gave them the power to regulate interstate commerce. In 1787, the word regulate meant regularize. It's different, we think of regulate now, it's what the federal government does to throttle down and control everything. They meant to just smooth it out and make everything work really well, as the states did what? Commerce in 1787 meant the shipment of goods. It was designed to give the federal government the power to, sh to control the shipment of goods across state lines so as to regulate or regularize that commerce. Today, the Supreme Court has interpreted through a series of decisions culminating in a decision which said that a farmer growing wheat for the consumption of his own family and his own livestock was engaged in interstate commerce because he wasn't buying wheat. That's now commerce, so that's this vast power. And that power has been deemed constitutional by the Supreme Court. And so the problem with that is that that is our constitution. And we might be able to use interposition if something wasn't contained in there that the federal government did. And on the issue of nullification, this is the problem I have with nullification philosophically. So there's all kinds of arguments. Is it constitutional? Is it not constitutional? We can get into a lot of detail that would bore everybody who's not a lawyer. But here's the problem with nullification, practically speaking. The federal government passes hundreds, and if you include regulations, thousands of laws every year. How much fight do we have in us? Are we going to fight thousands and thousands? Are we going to nullify thousands of regulations every year? I'd posit to you, they have an army of highly paid folks in Washington, D.C. who make it their career to pass these laws day in and day out. I love my children. I don't want them fighting the same fight next year and 10 years and 20 years and 50 years and 100 years from now. What I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do is actually craft a permanent or at least semi-permanent solution to the problems that face the nation. Just one other comment on nullification. <clears throat> if we nullify it in Texas, it's not nullified in Oklahoma. And if you nullify it, you're going to get challenged. And so then now you're going to be in a court case on whether your nullification was accurate. I mean, that's the, that's the practical aspect. But here's the other thing. You've got 168,000 things you've got to nullify if you want to get back to the original Constitution. 168,000 regulations and laws that you have to get back to to the regular first original constitution. We don't have, we'll never get that done. You might get it done here in Texas. I don't mess with Texas, you might done. <laughs> but Oklahoma, we'll never get it done. And so we'll all move to Texas. <laughs> Let's go over here. Trust me, you don't want all these Californians moving to Texas. It won't work out well for you. 
The Cloward-Piven strategy was hatched by two Marxist professors. The strategy was to use the weight of the poor to bankrupt the country, which is what you're talking about, this 160, and at the end, this 168,000, or trillion dollars of debt, at the end, when it was bankrupt and the currency was debased, are you gonna let them just, you know, die in the streets, or are you gonna save them? That was the whole strategy was to intentionally bankrupt the country. And what would then have to happen? They would have to change fundamentally the government and change it towards socialism and Marxism. A list of, of if, if those of you who are actually interested go to movetoamerica.org, you're gonna see a list who, of people, of organizations on the left who are endorsing, endorsing this convention of states, along with George Soros, and we all know who he is. This convention of states is a monumentally horrid idea because the hundreds of organizations, Code Pink, Sierra Club, um, darn, I, I lost it, and several, several others. If you I think there's actually over 200 move, on that list. Okay, move to them. Yeah, endorsing organizations for move yeah. to amend. Yep. Dot org. Go to it and you'll see who on the left is endorsing violating your constitution. I would challenge you, and I, I'll bring you back to the microphone if you can do this before the end of the meeting. Find one of those, look at every single one of those websites. I've had interns doing this for the last two years. Find one of those organizations on their website anywhere or in any statements they've issued that endorses the Convention of States project. One. And I'll bring you back. No, no, hold on a second. Let's be accurate in what we're talking about. What it says is they endorse the idea of calling a Convention of States. That's a very different thing. Right? So in other words, what, what a lot of those organizations would like to do, and they've now changed their position, by the way. Soros just came out and said this last week. But what they would like to do is call a convention to overturn the Citizens United decision. They would like to use Article 5 to overturn citizens. They, they would that's what they want to do. They can't do it under our application, and that's why you can't find a single organization that supports what we're doing. They're pretty smart. I, I mean, one thing I would say about George Soros is he's no dummy. Right? And if he thought that he could co-opt this movement, if the radical left thought they would co-opt this movement, you'd see all over the web the radical left co-opting what we're doing and endorsing what we're doing. And in fact, they go into, I, I'm telling you, I, I'm going to challenge you. Find on a single one of those organizations' websites an endorsement of the Convention of States project. This is important that we don't conf conflate the idea of people who want to use Article 5 with the Convention of States project. This is really important because I mean, it's the same as voting, right? If you say, well, people on the left really encourage their folks to get out and vote, so we should stop encouraging our folks to vote, right? People on the left look to the Constitution, so we should tell our people not to look to the Constitution. The question is, Article 5 is a tool. The question is, what do you intend to use that tool for? And you cannot find a single group on the left in the United States of America today that supports the Convention of States project. It doesn't exist. I've been at that website 50 times. We, we have our interns look at it regularly. You're, you're actually spreading misinformation. Again, I'm gonna challenge you and I'll give you the microphone, come back, find on any one of those websites, anywhere, anytime, a group endorsing the Convention of States Project. You can't find it because they're smart enough to know they can't use this project to get what they want. Right. So, and again, take the time, look on it, I'll give you the microphone back if you can find that. Any of those groups that support it specifically.
Has the Convention of States project developed uh, specific wording for specific amendments that are going to be under consideration? You almost answered my question when you were talking to the gentleman about interposition nullification, but I just wondered, is there specific wording that's going to be under consideration, or is, is the agenda not quite so precise yet? There will be suggested wording on some amendments, but again, remember, this is an independent group that represents Texas and Oklahoma and every other state that does this. They'll give their own instructions. We have model uh, uh, amendments out there. We have model uh, rules for the convention out there. We have model delegate limitation amendment a strategy for the different houses in all the states. So it's all out there. Uh, the question is, is do we really know everything that we should be doing or should we have a real national debate? One of the great things about this is this isn't the only group that's concerned about what's going on in this country, right? It's all across this country. So what we want is this to flower into a real discussion about what the nation believes. Here's the limitation and range you can do it. What are the possibilities to fix it? And I'm not so bright to know that I know all the answers. What I know is, is Washington's never going to fix it. That's what I know. Mention what, hmm? what Abbott did. Yeah, yeah well, Governor Abbott. Governor Abbott put forward nine amendments that fit within our three areas and suggested Texas offer those amendments. Well, lots of people are going to suggest amendments that fit within those range, and then it'll be up to the, del the commissioners to decide which ones they vote on, which ones they vote up, which ones they vote down. Our country and our kids are worth saving. This is a way our founders gave it to do it. I want to tell you, I'll be the first one out there if we aren't successful with this. Doing it a different way if I'm still around. God gives me my liberty. This government doesn't give me my liberty. Nonviolent civil disobedience has a role but not yet. You know, before we go to you, I would argue that this is the ultimate act of nonviolent civil disobedience. The founders built it into the Constitution. Remember, these men were revolutionaries, right? They weren't pacifists sitting around waiting for the authorities to tell them what to do, and they built in a mechanism for specifically, I, I describe this as the most radical, reasonable, revolutionary solution, and the founders gave it to us. If you could speak to just uh, three things, please. Uh, doesn't it, let's, let's assume that you can control this convention once it's convened. I believe that once Congress convenes it, you've lost control. Even to think that the states can control it, I believe that anything that the states have put out there, the supremacy clause of the Constitution over uh, trumps that. But let's assume you, you can control it. Mark Levin has proposed 11 amendments. Your own counsel is on record as saying that they want to change uh, four of the seven articles in the Constitution. You just said, uh, Governor, um, Abbott's got amendments, so just that right there scares me alone. If, if we could make sure that there was just one state, one vote, and everything was just going to be conservatives there, that's one thing. And then if you could speak to the fact that you did a conference with uh, Professor Larry Lessig sure. uh, in 2011 at Harvard, and the only two things you and he would have in common is that 
you both want to call a convention under Article 5. He's as far to the left as you can get and wants to rewrite the Constitution. He's on record as saying that. Thirdly, can you speak to the fact that uh, there's 40 plus bills that the Congress has offered in a 20 period? 20-year period where they uh, were trying to set the par sure. parameters of an Article 5 convention yeah. and they wanted to make delegations based on apportionment. Sure. Would you stay up there so I can make sure I answer all your questions? So the first is, uh, this is absolutely factual what you said. Congress, 40 times, somebody in Congress has proposed something saying that they can regulate convention. Um, Tom, how many things get proposed in Congress that never see the light of day? 10,000, 20,000 a year. Okay, 10 to 20,000 a year. Do you know how many times that there's been an affirmative vote by members of Congress that they had anything to do with controlling convention? Zero. Never happened in American history. So to me, that's a fantastic statistic. A mere 40 times out of the 10,000 times a year Congress does something, some poor misguided soul 40 times has proposed that Congress has a role, and all 40 times it's never even come to a vote on the floor of Congress. So they understand very well that they have... Okay, never even gone into a committee. So they full well understand that they have absolutely no role to play in the process. So that's number one. I want to address the Lessig thing. So, well, that's just a fact. I mean, you can shake your head, but th those are... prove that they don't have the control, that they really have the power of this convention is my belief. Well, but Congress doesn't believe it. And there's no law that says it. The Constitution says differently. The founders said differently. Federalist papers all said differently. So you can have a belief, but you need a basis in fact. And there's, you Article can't. Article 5 says Congress will convene the convention. Oh, actually, that's not what Article 5 says. Article 5 says Congress shall call, not will. So that is a, so ma'am, the law is about language. Language really matters. And, and when you look at the Constitution, language really matters. We wish. They followed the language, right? Shall call is a ministerial duty of Congress acting as an administrator for the states. All they're doing is counting applications, and then they're required to make that call. In fact, the, the power of the sovereign states is so strong that all the state legislatures we're dealing with have taken the position that if Congress doesn't call, they'll call themselves and convene anyway. So, uh, you know, our attitude about this whole thing from start to finish is we don't need no stinking Congress. So, Larry Lessig is a liberal law professor at Harvard Law. Believe it or not, they invited a redneck cowboy from Northern California to go speak at Harvard Law School, which I thought was one of the funniest things I ever heard. You can see this online if you, if you want to know what she's talking about. Before I was engaged in the Article 5 movement to really make this change, I went to Harvard, I got invited to this conference to co-host this conference, and I was fascinated because I found, interestingly, there were people on the left that were in favor of using Article 5 and people on the right. And there were people on the left who were uh, on, on the right who were in favor and opposed. So on both sides of the L. So to me, it was really interesting because I felt like, wow, a chance to have an actual discussion about ideas instead of yelling at each other about ideology. It was really interesting, and if you listen to me at that conference, you can see my evolution on the issue. My position at the conference was neutral. And the reason I was neutral is because I actually didn't believe you could do it. It seemed like an intellectual exercise and interesting to talk about, but really, 34 states actually doing this, or all these legislatures, all this getting to a convention, getting to, it just didn't seem possible to me. Until Mike Ferris brought me this project and said, no, I have a plan, it's actually possible. And that's what convinced me that I should dedicate my life to doing this. So I make no apologies for going to Harvard. I mean, frankly, as conservatives, if we're not willing to go into the lion's den, then we abdicate the playing field. And I believe conservative ideas always prevail if we go articulate them in the lion's den. I think you had one more. 
Yeah, the fact that your own counsel is on record saying they want to change four of the seven articles of the convention and then Mark Levin has 11. Just the fact that the conservative side has got so many. Yeah, those, those are not about changing articles. That's not what those are about. These are people who are proposing amendments to bring the Constitution back to its original intent. So it's not about changing articles, quote unquote. These are amendments and I expect that when we get to convention that each state will bring their own slate of amendments. There'll probably be hundreds of amendments discussed. I'm guessing there will be a handful that come out. My guess is probably five, seven, eight. I don't know how many will ultimately come out. But I expect, I hope, that there people bring hundreds of amendments to discuss. But your own council is on record as saying that there would... I'm not sure what you're talking about, but I'd love to well, see I, it. I, yeah. I can't remember his name. Yeah. The legislature's been a long time. Yep, but no he, problem. But he says that. So. All right, thank you. If I was on the hard left and I wanted the progressive movement to move, would I want an Article 5 convention? No. Sure I would. <laughs> I would want my Article 5 convention. And that's what people don't understand. Article 5 conventions will only be deemed as meeting the 34 threshold is if they're identical. Now, do you think Larry Lessig's going to support what we're offering an Article 5 convention? No way. So do they want an Article 5? If they could get 34 states to agree with them, they'd do it in a minute. To take your gun rights away, to make the government in control of all the rest of your life that they don't control right now. That doesn't mean that Article 5 as a tool is bad. It's only bad if it's in the wrong hands. And what people worry about is, have we got enough control to keep it out of the wrong hands? And the answer is absolutely. And let me give it to you again. Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Kentucky, Indiana. So it, it's Alaska, yeah. All right, let's go over here. Article 1, Section 8, the very last clause I have numbered is number 18, says Congress has the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States. Would that not give Congress the power to control the convention. That's I want question. him to answer it because I'm beginning to sound too much like a lawyer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that is embarrassing. <laughs> if your interpretation of the necessary and proper clause is correct, which I would argue it's not, respectfully, okay. then there is no constitution. Then there are no enumerated powers. The founders would have been outraged by that interpretation of the necessary and proper clause because it essentially nullifies the enumerated powers and the limited structure of governance that they created. So I just don't think that's a correct interpretation of the necessary and proper clause. And no court has ever interpreted that broadly. And according to Rob Nadelson, the primary scholar on the issue, he says that the courts have specifically ruled otherwise. Uh, you have mentioned a, a second constitution that's composed of court decisions that's about 2,000 pages long. Uh, do you know where we can get it? Is there a copy of this in one place, or is this like... Yeah, you actually can. If you go online, it's kind of expensive, but it's called the Annotated Constitution. Annotated Constitution. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Um, is there a set of operating instructions and rules of procedure that the um, convention would have to follow? Yeah, so uh, the answer is yes and no. And this is really important. So the way the convention works is when a convention convenes, we have a long history for this, 
They will get together in a room. They will have no particular authority other than the authority granted to them by their own commissions and their own states as commissioners. And they'll get in there and they will elect their own officers in that convention. And then they will adopt a rule set. And so this is kind of important. What are the rules of convention going to be? And so what we have done is we've drafted a set of rules. I, I say we, that's an overstatement. Professor Rob Nadelson, the ultimate authority on Article 5 in the United States of America, has drafted a rule set. That rule set, generally speaking, is based on what are called Mason's rules. The vast majority of legislatures, about 75% in America, operate on Mason's rules. And then on top of that, he's drafted a few pages of very specific rules for convention. Those can be found at the Convention of States website. The goal, ultimately, is to have at least 26 states adopt those rules before we get to convention. If a constitutional amendment gets out of the convention and a state votes one way or the other, either for or against, do they have the right to change, to subsequently change their vote? Well, first of all, to clarify the procedure, generally states don't vote for or against. So it's only going to come up in a state, historically, if they intend to ratify. Their goal is to, to ratify. Right, ratify. Let's say, let's, let's say they don't vote to ratify it, like in the Equal Rights Amendment, but mm -hmm. they change their mind. Can yeah, they, they can come back their... and decide to ratify, absolutely. As long as the amendment is outstanding, they can decide to ratify. Does the amendment stay outstanding indefinitely or for seven years? Or it's some... up to the convention to set the term of ratification. But there so... would be a fixed limit on when you have to act or it ceases to be a proposed amendment? Yeah, I would expect that the convention will set a term uh, for ratification. That's correct. So uh, the best example, and a lot of people don't realize this, you know, we had the Bill of Rights, 10 amendments, it was actually 12, right? The first one the, that the founders thought was most important was no federal income tax. That was number one, by the way. We say freedom of speech, but that was number one. Number two was uh, the fixing of pay of the federal government, that you can't raise or lower the pay of sitting legislatures or the president, and that sat out there for 200 years roughly before it was ratified as the 27th. So, but the convention I expect based on history is going to set a term of ratification. We're gonna go over here and by the way, we got about five minutes left guys, so we probably won't be able to get to everybody, but we'll move as fast as we can through the last few. I'll try to be brief. Uh, to get away from the mechanics of the convention itself, I'd like to make an observation. You have rightly observed that the, uh, we continue to elect new leaders and new uh, representatives and there's no change. And the reason is they don't abide by their oath to uphold the Constitution. So the question I have is why do you think the politicians would abide by these new amendments or this new piece of paper when they don't abide by the current one? I think you're selling a false hope and there's a better way and that's to elect godly men who will uphold the Constitution in our representative form of government. First of all, I would tell you that your assumption is wrong. They do uphold their oath to the, to the Constitution it's the one that the judges have given us. Just think about it. They're not watching enumerated powers because the courts have said the enumerated powers don't count anymore. Right? So uh, having been there, look, I've used this on everybody up there. Why would you violate your oath when it comes to spending money? I actually used the old enumerated powers. That's how I blocked $750 billion worth of spending. I said, you want to get past me, then you got to show me where it's in the enumerated powers. So let's say I'm wrong and that they don't. Tell me how we're going to get these wonderful members of Congress 
that are going to be there and you're going to have 60 in the Senate and 218 in the House. By the time that happens, we'll be belly up. Well, and let me, let me add, let's go back to the founders. The founders didn't believe what you just said. Right, if you look back at the convention, the convention, there were some scurrilous characters at that convention, right? It was not all Madison and Washington, right? There were folks there that were interested in their own financial interests, their own political interests. What the founders told us is we balance avarice against avarice and greed against greed. They didn't expect that we would have all wonderful, godly, saintly men in government. They created a system of checks and balances because they specifically told us that we wouldn't. That being said, we should absolutely be doing what you said. We should be trying to elect godly men and women who will uphold their oath of office. It's just the founders understood human nature well enough to know that wasn't the solution to create a balanced system of governance. So we're gonna do, I think, one more question, Tam. You've talked a lot about the federal government doing too much, spending too much, grabbing power, that sort of thing, and that's important. But in terms of border security, it seems like the government's doing too little, abandoning its duty. Is there anything being done about that through the Convention of States? I didn't hear the whole question. Sorry, I was border security. Is there anything? Can we do anything about that with the Convention of States? We're, there, we're talking about them doing too much. No, doing border, much. What's border security about? It's about the rule of law, right? Right. 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 So there's no enforcement of the rule of law. Right. All right. That's not the only place there's not enforcement of the rule of law. How about marijuana? It's still a class one drug. As far as the DEA is concerned, we're not enforcing that in three states. So what happened when we fall down on the rule of law? Bad things happen, one. Number two, people lose confidence in the rule of law. All right. One of the things that ought to come out of this convention, which did until President George Bush was, uh, President George W. Bush, was president is that the attorney general by constitution works for us not the president right yeah. right except that's not the practice anymore right so what do we have to do is we have to make that formalized within the constitution so what do you do what do you do about you know people aren't xenophobic people are disgusted that the rule of law is not being enforced they don't hate hispanics they hate the fact they hate the fact that the rule of law is not being applied properly and if you're not going to apply it there why should it apply to me now the glue that holds this country together is the belief that the rule of law is fair when that starts getting undermined the country's going to fall apart All right. so so the point is is can we do something about it the first thing that will happen is if we have a convention of states, the rule of law will start becoming supreme again. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.